Let's get out of Hades today. We're going to finish book 11, get into book 12. We're going to talk about a few of the people being punished down in Hades. Then we're going to talk about Scylla, Charybdis, and the Sirens. Technically, we're going to talk about the Sirens first. All right, just quick review. The men punished down in Hades. We've seen Agamemnon. We've seen Achilles. We've seen Elpenor. We've seen Tiresias. We've seen Anticlair. We've seen the great women of the class or the past, including Jocasta, called Epicasta in this translation. We are now going to see Tidius, Tantalus, and Sisyphus. And then we're going to end Hades by seeing Heracles. And I'll spin off a little interpretation for you. And tell me whether you agree or disagree in seminar tomorrow or Monday. So, Tidius. He has two vultures eating his liver for the attempted rape of the mother of Apollo and Artemis, Leto. Because of that, he is forever enchained. See if I can move this. He is forever enchained on a rock with two vultures eating at his liver. Question often asked by students, does his liver grow back? The answer seems to be yes. At night, the vultures stop eating his liver, grows back. Next day, it's eaten away all day. The idea seems to be that when you try to do something terrible, when is the only time you have a reprieve from the suffering that your emotions cause you? When you're asleep. But some things are so terrible that they follow you even in what? Even in death. And that will be a theme taken up by the Inferno next year. Next guy, Tantalus. We love his punishment. In fact, we have a verb from his name to tantalize someone. I've used this example before. I say, you're a cat. This is a string. I put it in front of you. You, of course, want to try and hit it. I pull it away from you. I'm doing what to you? Tantalizing, tantalizing you. In fact, that is how we that is how we pull horses forward, right? What is it that we hang right in front of a horse to make sure that it moves forward? It's called a carrot. In fact, something you should know about reward and punishment in the teaching profession is we say sometimes you gotta use the stick, which means the whip on the butt of the horse, which causes it what? Pain, but also causes it to do what? Move forward. Sometimes you gotta use the stick, sometimes you gotta use the carrot. The carrot is a reward or a punishment. A reward and so as a teacher what do I use I use both I use both the stick and the carrot because then you have two motivational forces you run away from the thing you don't want towards the thing you do want and that is a very strong way to uh, get to your goals I highly recommend it. in any case Tantalus has water beneath his chin and branches of fruit above his face for all time you say what's the problem with that well he's super hungry and super thirsty and you say well why doesn't he just drink some water well, tries to drink the water, the water recedes. So can he flip it up with his hand? Can he go really fast? Can he split his mind in two and then trick himself and still drink? And the answer is no, 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 no. The water will always recede just fast enough to where he will never get it. Even if he were to somehow figure out a way to get the water to drop onto his lips, the second that it was right about to hit his lips, evaporate, gone. Yes? There's something they're not allowed to. In any case, Cerberus is around there somewhere. Also, Persephone, the queen of the of Hades, is known to hold the Gorgon's head, which can petrify you forever. And so, if you are down in the underworld, which Odysseus sort of is, he's always afraid that she's going to petrify him at any moment. In fact, in the Inferno that you'll read next year, you will see a Gorgon's head threatened to be brought up in Virgil, who you'll read soon will actually cover the eyes of Dante. So if you try and step out of line down there, well, 
here's how you should think. When you're down there, you're stepping on eggshells. What does that expression mean? Or you're on thin ice. It means if you step out of line in the smallest way, something terrible might happen. So are you likely to? No, 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 no. And so, and when he tries to reach up to this beautiful fig, olive, fruit tree, full of all sorts of fruits, which is, are essentially like candies to ancient Greek people because they didn't have candies in the way that we do. And they didn't have processing plants like we do. Uh, we're very sophisticated people. The branches proceed forever, leaving him forever. What and what? Hungry and thirsty. Hungry and thirsty forever. Sorry. Play again. Sisyphus. The great philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche says that Sisyphus is a mark of man. Sisyphus is what man is. And in fact, Albert Camus, a great 20th century French philosopher, wrote a work called The Myth of Sisyphus. Camus was an existentialist thinker from the 20th century. Some people call Friedrich Nietzsche an existentialist uh, psychologist philosopher from the 19th century. They say he philosophized with a hammer, which meant he destroyed or created things. Destroyed, broke things. Yes. But the idea seems to be this. Sisyphus, for attempting to trick death, is given eternal life. He, remember, he caught death, kept him enslaved for about a year until Hermes came and released death. His punishment is to forever push a boulder, boulder up a hill just to have it fall down at the end of the day. How is that like your life? You go through your day every day. You fall asleep at night. What do you have to do again the very next day? Get up and do something very similar, especially during the weekdays, yes. And sometimes when it feels like nothing's changing, does it feel like school or whatever thing you've been doing will never end? But what is it that you know as a moral person? That everything that you know will at some point, what? End. end. And so the idea seems to be, if you take a philosophical approach to this, that you should enjoy the struggle of moving up, moving the boulder up the mountain. Because what else do you have to do in this world? Yes? Shouldn't death be one day's punishment? Because he got sick. That's a good point. I think the punishment was that this story still exists about death getting tricked by a very tricky mortal man. And of course, because he's so tricky, who do we think Sisyphus is related to? There are some accounts that he is an ancestor to whom, who's another tricky fellow that we know who's down in the underworld right now. Yes? Oh, never mind. Oh, my goodness. Who is the Odysseus. person we followed into the underworld? Odysseus. Yes, very good. Very good, very good, very good. All right, let's see Heracles now. Heracles. A couple things about him. He is still hunting down here in the underworld. I want to draw some attention to him. We've talked a little bit about the transformation of the heroic image in the ancient Greek past. Heracles is the first superhero. Well, think about whether he's sophisticated or primitive. What's his weapon here? It's a big, heavy stick. What do we call those? Clubs. Club. Does it take much art to bash someone over the head with a club? No, it's not like a sword or even better, like a bow and arrow. Or even better, like having the technological capacity to deploy a nuclear weapon. It's like those are sophisticated weapons right there. Also, what's on his head here? It looks like a mane with a tail. It is the skin of a what? Lion, indicating that he is strong and barbaric. Who else did we know was strong but didn't use a club? He used a spear, had a shield, was very handsome, but could play some music too. He was the hero of the Iliad, sort of, the protagonist at least. Achilles. Achilles, yes, yes, yes. But did Achilles win the Trojan War? No. His pride kept him from it. 
Who is it that helped to win the Trojan War? Odysseus. Odysseus had the mind. So Heracles is an ancient heroic ideal from the past, an ideal sort of now dead. Now here's something weird about him. He's still hunting in the same way that he did during life, very similar to Orion. The claim is made that he is a shade and a god. This is very weird. Because if he has been made into a god, then the shade he leaves down in the underworld is not his soul. Then it is not actually the souls of people that go to the underworld. It is just the remnants of them. Shade, think about it. Shade is a shadow. A shadow comes from your body with light behind it. It is just a remnant or a vague outline of you. And so something weird is, you might say, how is it that Heracles became a god? Well, he was poisoned by hydro blood by his wife at the time. I think it was Megara. It may have been Dea Nera. Dea Nera. But I think it was Megara. In any case, she thought he was going to leave her because he was known to do that sort of thing. He was a bit of a womanizer. And so she gave him a shirt off a centaur named Chiron, or excuse me, Nessus, that he had killed with poison arrows. The centaur said that the shirt had a love potion on it. In fact, it had body-eating and corrosive acid-like poison in it. When Heracles put the shirt on, it adhered to his body in a way that he could not take it off and started to eat through his flesh. He had to climb an entire mountain with his flesh being eaten. So if you ever go on a hike again, is it that bad? No. No. And then he had to build his own funeral pyre, which he then lit on fire. And then he had to do what? Jump on it. Yes, and his friend Philoctetes had to bury him correctly, so he had to really what him? Trust him. Otherwise, he does not become a hero. And what supposedly happened is he burned away his mortal parts, was assumed into heaven, and was given Hera's beautiful daughter, Heba, which means youth, as his consort. And here's a really weird story. Supposedly Hera, from which we get the name Heracles, which means glory of Hera, which is deeply ironic because she hated him, staged a false mock birth with him where he went under her skirts and crawled out from them like they were a fort, and he was playing fort so that he would be born to her and adopted as her son. Very weird. But the question is, how can someone be a shade and a god? I'll only say one or two things about that right here. Apparently thus the shades of people are but their memories, not their souls. For the ancient Greeks. There's not true immortality for the Greeks. There will be a later idea of immortality. We will talk about a white isle or the Elysian field, which are very similar to the idea of, say, a garden of Eden or a celestial paradise. Yes, a place that you go that is perfect beyond perfect after you die. Homer did not necessarily have that sort of place. Yes. For the Greeks, the soul and the body are mixed together to make the human. Without one piece, you can't have the other. And so, it's, it makes for great heroes, but for tragic tales, I would say. Because when is it you get to be who you are? While you're alive. And so what is it that the Greeks valued more than anything? Being alive and living well, I would say even better than that. Living well. And that's what Achilleus, as a shade now, seems to be sad about. That though he was alive and had every gift, he did not do what? He did not live as well as he could have, nor as long as he could have. Very, very odd. So Heracles becomes, in some way, a shade, and in another way, 
an immortal God. We will see him as an immortal God in the Aeneid. He doesn't become the God of anything particularly, though. He's not an Olympian. So uh, if y'all were wondering, what's he become the God of? Uh, it doesn't say. Okay, so now we're scared. We've stayed down in the underworld too long. Odysseus thinks, oh no, the Gorgon. It might be brought up Medusa's face. I don't want to be petrified forever. I don't want to stay down here like the great friend of Theseus. Um, how am I forgetting his name? It starts with a P. Oh my goodness. My goodness. Names just pop out of my head every now. Pirithos. There we go. Pirithos was the name. Uh, Pirithos, he had a very brilliant idea. He decided to go down to the underworld to steal the wife of Hades. I think that's a great idea. Go down to the underworld and steal Persephone from Hades. It's like some of these humans trying to uh, abduct female goddesses. You think that's, that ever worked? No, not once. Not once. Even when you marry an immortal goddess as a mortal like Peleus with Thetis, it doesn't usually work out. Remember that she left him pretty soon after she had her first child when he looked at her in the wrong way after he saw her burning the immortal parts off of her son, Achilles. All right. Odysseus returns to Iaia. As Elpenor had asked, he buries Elpenor. So Elpenor is not going to want him forever now. Haunt him forever. That's right. And so he discusses what he learned with Circe. He's a smart guy. Decides to trust her and talk to her and say, well, you know, I got to talk to Theresius, and Theresius told me that I'm cursed, and that the curse means I'm either going to die or show up with no ship in a bad state with no crew, back to my home with a bunch of suitors in the home, and then I'm going to have to go meet these purple cheek people, plant an oar in the ground, and then die. And she says, okay, okay, this is the next step. In order to get where you're going, you have even worse challenges ahead of you than going to the underworld. And remember, how is it that he reacted when he heard he had to go to the underworld? He cried. Please keep writing. Well, the next thing he has to go through are sirens. Now, we know the word siren. We usually hear it in an ambulance fire truck or a police vehicle goes by us. Supposedly they have different sort of rings. Bless you. Those sirens mean help is coming. These sirens mean hurt or harm is coming. They sing a song. They sing a song that is true to the heart and is tailored to the heart of any ear that hears them. Whatever it is that you want most is what they sing of to you. So even if all of us in this room were to hear the sirens, we would all hear a different song. And yet we would all hear the song of our greatest what's? Desires. Because they, like advertisers, who now have access to very sophisticated market research and neuroscience, will offer you whatever it is you want. And yet, just because they offer it, does that mean they give it? No, no, no. It's like the Taco Bell Supreme Crunch Wrap that is actually a piece of plastic that has hairspray on it in uh, a commercial in order to look glossy and shiny and beautiful and is not even real what? Food. Right. Exactly. Sirens offer a big game, but they give you death. And thus, they help us emphasize the theme we know so well. Nothing is as it seems. Circe and her gingerbread-like house in the woods, refuge and wonder for these men, actually turning into a, getting turned into a pig in death. All these sirens, they offer you everything for nothing. 
Is that something you think is ever going to be offered to you? Do you think there is a such thing as a free lunch, as the business people say? No. no. If you want everything, you better be willing to give up everything. Which means you better be willing to sacrifice. Which is what the sirens claim you don't have to do. Which is the biggest problem with them. And I would say with people who offer you mm, weak advice about life. This is how you have to deal with them. You hear their voices, they mesmerize you. You turn your ship towards them, it crashes. You die staring at them, they eat you. Apparently they vomit up your bones or something like that too. Their bones and crash ships all around their island. Very scary or welcoming looking place. Scary. And if you were within your wits and thinking and you saw a bunch of human bones and crash ships on this island, you'd probably think, yeah, let's go there or stay away. Stay away. But if you're out of your wits and you think they're going to give you everything and you discount all the evidence of your senses, you might end up just like everybody else. And so this is what Cersei says. She says, you got to take wax, beeswax, put it in the ears of your men. But if you want to hear the song, what you need to do have your men tie you up on the mast very strong. So strong you cannot possibly get out. And then when you hear the song, you need to know it's going to affect you like it affects everybody. Remember, Odysseus is humble. If he were proud, what would he think? If I hear the song, it won't affect me at all. Exactly. That would get him what? Definitely. Killed. And his men. What he has to do when he hears the song, it starts going crazy because he'll freak out, right? And what's he going to want to do when he hears the song? Of course, he's going to want to try and escape like a lotus eater getting back to the Isle of the Lotus Eaters. Yes, he's going to say probably, let me what? Let me go, let me go. He's going to say, I'm the captain, let me go. Are his men to let him go in that moment? No, they are not. They are to tie him even tighter. In fact, this is sort of based on an idea that you might hear in an ethics class in college. One is this, you borrow a weapon from a friend a gun. It's theirs. They come to you in a heated rage and they say, give me my gun. They're obviously very angry. Why is it that they want their weapon probably? To use it. Is that probably in their best interest or your community's interest? If they are incensed? No. But it's their gun. So it's their property. And so you should give them their gun back if it's their property. But should you give it back to them in this moment? Probably not. Probably not. People would like to use another example about this, where if you were in 1940s or late 1930s Germany, and you were, say, housing Jewish people, hiding them from the Nazi authorities, and an authority came to your door, knocked on it, and said, are there Jewish people in your house? Should you lie to the authority or tell them the truth? And in general, the answer is what? In general, you want to tell the truth or lie? You want to tell the truth, of course, to authorities. But in this specific case, what do you want to do? Lie. Probably lie because the authorities are just or unjust at this point. Evil, Evil unjust. And Thomas Aquinas, a medieval philosopher, you'll read some next year, says, the only laws you have to obey are just laws from just and rightful authorities. It is actually your duty and responsibility to disobey unjust laws. And in fact, is that not how America came to be? We believe in justice in this place. Very good. So Odysseus is not going to have wax in his ears. His men are. In fact, I'll just tell you one very interesting thing. 
Cersei says, if you want to, you can keep the wax out of your ears. When Odysseus presents his plan, he says, Cersei told me that I was to keep the wax out of my ears. You all have to have it. Why does he make this change? A little bit unclear, a little bit unclear, but is he slightly misrepresenting what he knows? Yes, yes, question. I was going to say, um, if he said that, the crewmates probably would have wanted to take her off too. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yes. We will tell you what he hears. I will, I will, we will read together the Song of the Sirens for him. They will promise him knowledge of all things, which means that he's the ultimate what? What sort of people like to go around and adventure and figure things out? Explorers. He's the ultimate explorer. In any case, skill in Charybdis. Next, it will come to a rock formation called the Roving Rocks. You'll have to go through a strait. A strait is a body of water between two large promontory land configurations. On one side, high above on a sheer cliff, is Scylla. Scylla is horrifying. She has six dragon-like heads with three rows of sharp teeth each and a belt of yelping dogs. She supposedly was once a beautiful maiden, but she loved a man called Glaucus, just like Circe loved a man called Glaucus. So it says in Ovid's Metamorphoses. And Circe, what is it we know she does to people who she doesn't necessarily like? She puts malignant drugs in their food and turns them into what? Into animals or into monsters. And that is supposedly what happened to Scylla. If you go by Scylla, six men will be eaten no matter what. It does not matter whether you arm yourself, have armor on, anything, she will get you. On the other side of things is the whirlpool or the whirlpool generating Charybdis. She sucks down the salt sea three times a day. For how long, we do not know. At what intervals, we do not know. If she starts suck down the sea, she will take the ship down. She will kill everybody. Question. Thinking about odds. Which side, as leader, do you go along? Do you risk everything and try and go through Charybdis? Or do you go with the sure thing and go by Scylla, knowing that people will die, possibly even yourself? Well, Odysseus will choose Scylla. And interestingly enough, he will forget the advice of Circe. And he will arm himself, which is very suspicious and should be suspicious to his men. And yet, were Scylla to have chosen him, it would have made no difference. And also recall that the Greek ships are just one level. They're like giant canoes. So is there any hiding? There is no hiding. Right. No weapon can stop her. Ah, yes. And then the last place we're going to come to. This last place, the greatest challenge, is not the creatures that we see or the monsters but our own what? Desires. Our own desires, that's right. Because we'll see some mooing cattle of the sun. So what? Cool, some cows and bulls. They're probably pretty. Ah, but what if like Menelaus on Pharos off the coast of Egypt, the winds turned against us? And what if we run out of our food? And what if we're stuck there? One day without food, two days without food, three days. How do those cattle start to look? Pretty good to eat. Even though we know if we eat them, we will what? And yet, and this is so interesting in the history of mankind, eating certain food, knowledge of death coming to you. Also a very famous story, and which story that some of you know? From an Old Testament. The eating of the apple in the Garden of Eden, of course. 
You eat this, you know you'll die. What did humans do there? Eat it. Can you guess what will happen here? Eat it. They'll eat it. They'll eat it. Meaning that when you give in to your desire without concern for the future, what happens to your future? It may end much sooner than you think. It may crash and burn very good, yes. So if they had eaten the cattle, would they be still as bad as Well, that's one of those big questions. There is the prophecy, of course, that they are supposed to die, but it will end up being the case that it will be their choices that lead to their demise. So whether it is their choices or their fate, or whether Zeus simply knows that their fate is to make the wrong choices, is a little bit unclear. Sometimes it's called double determination in the scholarly literature. The gods make them do it, but they also choose to do it. So they... They converge on each other and create the future that's expected. Yes? Does Odysseus eat the cattle too? He will not. Remember, he's always looking for a distinction. His ship in a different place is in a different place from the harbor in the uh, amongst amongst the Lystragonians. When he goes to Circe, he takes the moly so that he does not turn into an animal. He is the one that comes up with the idea to get Polyphemus. He's the one that will hear the song of the sirens. He's the one that will restrain himself from the ignoble master, the belly. And the belly is quite a master. How many of you, when you get hungry, you're thinking about food, nothing else, and you're going to get cranky if you don't get it? Bang, my hand is up. My hand is up. All right. Let's go through the sirens, the roving rocks, and Threnakia. We'll probably not finish Threnakia today. We have to talk a little bit about that. Let's look at the sirens. This is a beautiful image of the sirens. There are many famous images. I think I have a face painting right here, too. They're often represented as bird-like, often three of them. Sometimes they're all connected together because they are a concept that's connected together. But I want you to look at this. You see Odysseus obviously tied there. Do you see those eyes of his? you got to look really closely. He looks pretty what right there? Crazy. Yeah, pretty tempted, pretty tempted. These guys are all looking at him. They're like, whoa, this is pretty weird little mermaid-looking creatures trying to come up and uh, get us, uh, please stay away, please stay away. The sirens, though, the idea is that they are very wooding, tempting, and cunning. Yes, they are very tempting. They are temptresses. This is a good image, too. This is from one of uh, a very famous base painting. You can see three of them there, too, as well as, well as Odysseus uh, uh, tied to the mast. Oh, my goodness. And please now open your books to book 12. Let's read what it is that they sing. It might take me a second. I don't have the bookmark in to find it. But if you find it first, and please let me know. I'm in book 9 now. Union of all the crew. Ah, uh, yes. Good, 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 good. Okay, I'm in book 12 now. There we go. Okay. Ah, yes. Page 190, lines 184, line 184 or so in book 12. But when we were far from the land, as a voice shouting carries lightly plying, this starts at 181, the swift ship as it drew nearer was seen by the sirens, and they directed their sweet song toward us. And so this is the song that Odysseus hears, and this will tell you what the great desire of his heart is. I want you to connect this to the poem, Ulysses, that we heard by Alfred Lord Tennyson. We'll call that poem where he's a king, but what is it that he wishes to do rather than to rule? To see the sea, to explore. Well, see if Tennyson got the heart of Odysseus right here. Come this way, honored Odysseus. 
Great glory of the Achaeans. Imagine this is a beautiful voice. And stay your ship so that you can listen here to our singing. For no one else has ever sailed past this place in his black ship until he has listened to the honey sweet voice that issues from our lips. Then go on well pleased, knowing more than ever he did, for we know everything that the Argives and Trojans did, and suffered in wide Troy through the gods' despite over all the generous earth. We know everything that happens. Think about that. They're not only offering him knowledge of what? Everything through their beautiful song. But they say, come stay your ship and do what no man has ever done, which is what? Come stay, listen to our song, and then what? Leave. What is it that you do not get to do if you crash your ship into their island? They draw you away, never to return. So not only would he learn everything, he would have ultimate distinction. Is that something we would all be interested in? Of course, of course. But what does that tell you about something that offers you everything that you want for nothing? That it is true or that it is always untrue? It is too good to be true. It is more than it appears to be. It is not what it seems to be. And Odysseus hears this, he starts to freak out and to move against his restraints. And he demands to be let free. And then his men do what, of course? They tie him tighter. And they move on. And they come to Skill and Cribdis. Is this not an ominous picture? I want you to look at that. You see the waves. You see the rocks. You see what in the distance. Look closely. You see Skilla. This is like when you know a bad decision is coming up. Is it a decision that you want to make? No. Is it a decision that you have to make? Yes. Yes. Is it actually like future? Is it just a world war? Unclear. Unclear. Represented in different ways. Unclear whether it produces. I would say it does seem to be a creature that produces a whirlpool by sucking down the sea. But it could just as well be a maelstrom-like whirlpool. Those things do happen. If I could. We do have dramatic representations of that, even from the last 10, 15 years. Have any of you seen the third Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End? The very last fight is between two ships swirling down a what? A whirlpool. Very good. And they say, maelstrom, and they have to sail their hearts out. Well, ooh, that's a very bad picture of Skillet and Charybdis in a whirlpool. I should have found something better for you than that. A little bit pixelated. Ah, the Cattle of the Sun there. I really like this picture of the Cattle of the Sun. It's very interesting. It's almost like it suggests that what differentiates humans from animals is that we have an idea of what? Something worth bowing towards. What is the first thing that we bow towards as creatures? That represented gods, right? It's almost as if what differentiates us from the animals is having an idea of the what's? The gods, or the eternal laws of order of the universe. And you might say, that sounds crazy, and I would say, does it? Or has our knowledge of physics and the laws of the cosmos given us great power as a creature? Do we now have weapons, AC, disease treatments, cars? Hmm, does that make us different from the other animals? So different we do not even think of ourselves as animals. 
And in fact, what is a great insult to give to somebody? You eat like a what? Animal. You eat like a pig. You're acting like an animal right now. You're out of control. Exactly right. Past the sirens. We had the wax in our ears as the crewmates. Odysseus was tied to the mast. In order to hear the sirens called, don't worry about writing this. We're going to move on for this. They offer knowledge of all things. And to give Odysseus the ultimate distinction is being the person who learned all things and can share. Can anybody share all things with everybody? No, you can share some things with somebody. All right, here are the rovers. This is a good picture. As I told you, Odysseus arms just in case. But he seems to have forgotten the advice of Circe. Because even if he has a mech warrior suit on or a Gundam suit, will he survive Scylla if she wants to eat his face off? No, he will not. They pass by Scylla, not Charybdis. Good decision, bad decision. Why? Think. Yes? It's a good decision because the odds are probably in his favor to go this way. That seems to be right. Good decision because guaranteed he will lose six men, but also guaranteed he will not lose all his men. Whereas if he tries to risk Charybdis, even if he were to actually get by Charybdis, what would he have risked? Everything. Everything. And does he know whether he will actually get by Charybdis if he tries to try Charybdis? No. Is that a responsible decision as a leader? No, it would be an irresponsible decision. I will read this to you very quickly. Because we see some horrors here. Of course, we see men destroyed by the Lystragones, see men eaten by the Cyclopes. And yet, Odysseus will say this. Line 244 and book 12. We, in fear of destruction, kept our eyes on Charybdis. But meanwhile, Scylla, out of the hollow vessel, snatched six of my companions, the best of them, for strength and hands work. And when I turned to look at the ship with my other companions, I saw their feet and hands from below already lifted high above me. And they cried out to me and called me by name Odysseus! The last time they ever did it in heart's sorrow. And as a fisherman, this is a nasty, nasty simile. With a very long rod on a jutting rock will cast his treacherous bait for the little fishes and sinks the horn of a field-ranging ox into the water. This would be our hook. Then hauls them up and throws them on the dry land, gasping and struggling. Anybody ever seen a a flailing fish on the land. One moment. As they were ho hoisted up the cliff, right in her doorway, she ate them up. One more sentence, two actually. They were screaming and reaching out their hands to me in this horrid encounter. And here is the important bit. That was the most pitiful scene that these eyes have ever looked on in my sufferings as I explored the routes over the water. Now you know the horror of Scylla. Until next time, students.